You're listening to a message from Victory Dumaguete. We are going back to our series called The Gospel Explained. And many of you know that in this series, we've been looking into the book of Romans. And on this 15th week of being in this series, we will look into Romans chapter 8, the latter part, the last few portions of this chapter. You know, as we look into this, as we land Romans chapter 8 here today, I'm going to lead you into a good observation for a while. In Romans chapter 8 verse 1 starts with a proposition that talks about us not having condemnation in Christ. And the thing that we're going to be looking into here today, which is Romans chapter 8 verse 39, a portion of that, talks about us having no, us not being separated from the love of Christ. So Romans chapter 8 verse 1 talks about no condemnation. And Romans chapter 8 verse 39 talks about no separation. These two things serve as the bookends that bind together, that push together, that keeps together the entirety of Romans chapter 8. So I'd like for us to have that as a framework. As we look into Romans chapter 8 verse 31 to 39, always have that as your perspective, as a framework. Those four words that I just mentioned, no condemnation, no separation. Allow me to go into Romans chapter 8 verse 31 to 39 now. And concerning this, John Murray said, Romans chapter 8 verse 31 to 39 is the highest rung in the ladder of comfort. What a timely passage of the scripture for every single one of us. As we are in the midst of a pandemic, we've been in this crisis for six months now, five months now, and in the midst of joblessness, hopelessness, loneliness, because of this crisis, I hope and pray that as true believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will find comfort in the words that we will look into here today. We're reading from the ESV. It says here, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And the answer to that in verse 7 it says, No! In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's start this off by talking about a common contemporary culture that we have in our time right now. You know, one of the saddest contemporary culture that has been propagated by social media is what we call cancel culture. Perhaps if you're a bit older, you may not have heard of what cancel culture is. It's basically as simple as this. If you're someone who made a mistake or a group of people have made a mistake, people can actually swarm on you on social media and basically cancel you, cancel everything about you. In short, when you're someone who's been canceled, you are boycotted, you are barred, and you are bashed. And that is a prevailing culture that we have in our generation right now, in our times right now. 
The sad thing with that is that that kind of culture gives us a picture of our volatile or how fragile and insufficient our description of what love is. It gives us a picture that we are incapable of expressing what love is. The volatility, the fragility, and how transitory love is for many of us brings us to the point of being able to cancel people. I'm sharing this because I'd like first to put this in mind. If I look into the contemporary culture and bring it to our lives right now as Christian believers, as true believers, I want to ask this question. As a believer, as a true believer, would it be that if you're someone who made a mistake or someone who have sinned, could it be that God can cancel you? Will God abandon and abort us if we made a mistake? If we made sins in our life, if you want me to be a bit more specific, if we live a life of hypocrisy and duplicity, would it be that God will cancel us? Will we hear words from God telling us, Bahala kayo sa buhay nyo. I'm not happy with you anymore. Which are common words that we see in many households wherein either the mother or the father, the husband or the wife, have left their partner. There are some of us who are watching this right now and you have perhaps deliberately quote-unquote forfeited eternal life. You have surrendered grace and have abandoned God or so you think. And perhaps as you walk away from the church and you walk down the road of rebellion, you find out only if you are a true believer that the grace of God is there and will hem you back in into His presence. I want to start this off by sharing with you a biblical proposition. And it is this. For the true convert, for the true Christian, we are not only predestined for glory, but we are also preserved for glory. In short, for those of us who start in Christ, our comfort is we will end in Christ. Those who start in Christ will end in Christ. It is not true for everyone, though. I have to qualify this carefully. Because if someone may start in victory but may have not started in Christ, someone may have just started in church, you know, just taking the church as a club, but have not really started out in Christ. So when I talk about this proposition, those who start in Christ will end in Christ. I'm talking about true believers. I'm talking about people who have a real relationship with Christ. And by saying true believers, I'm talking about someone who is growing in the grace of sanctification. Far from perfect, but growing in the grace of sanctification. Well then, if you are not someone, or if you're someone who doesn't have any interest in the Spirit's work of sanctification in your life, then perhaps this message is an evangelistic one for you. Let's go into Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39 now. Let's start off by looking to verse 31. It says here, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The first two words, what then, I'd like for us to understand what then here is an exclamatory conclusion. So I'd like for us to understand every time you read this, there's an excitement to what Paul is saying here. What then shall we say to these things? It is an exclamatory conclusion, meaning to say there's an interjection here. We're arriving at a specific conclusion that excites every single believer. That's basically how Paul was writing this. Then he starts saying, what then shall we say to these things? First question, what are these things? 
So Paul in essence was like saying, okay, in line with these things, what are you to say? So the question for us is, what are these things? And for us to understand this, these things here are actually found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30. And that's the immediate context of the verses that we're looking at here today. So let's try to read Romans chapter 20, verse 30, for us to understand what these things are. It says here, And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Look at this one, verse 29 and verse 30. It says here, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. That these things in verse 31 points to these things that we have just read. So in short, what then shall we say to these things? These things talk about the golden chain of your salvation. The golden chain of your redemption. That God foreknew you. That God predestined you. That God is conforming you. That God has justified you. And in the future, God will glorify you. So Paul was like, these things talk about your conversion up until your consummation. Salvation to your glorification. So in essence, the broader question of Paul in verse 31, in the first clause of verse 31 is, in light of the work of God's, of your redemption in your life, what do you have to say? In light of the fact that Christ died for you, in light of the fact that you are a recipient of the gospel, what have you to say? In essence, that's what Paul is saying here. What then shall we say to these things? That is a question. And the interesting here is, Paul answers this question with another question. And here's what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's try to make some qualification based on this question by looking at a contrast. Look at these words here. Look at the words for us and against us. In one question, in one clause, Paul puts these four words. For us and against us. First question is, who is us that Paul is talking about here? Once again, the us here are those whom the Bible pertains in Romans chapter 8 verse 29 to 30. Those whom God foreknew, predestined, conformed, justified, glorified. That's the us that we're talking about. In short, I have to say this as early as now, this is exclusively for Christians. This is exclusively for true believers of Christ. This is a verse that you take and randomly give to the people out there in the streets. No, this verse, the as that we're talking about here, is exclusively for those who have been adopted by God. And so what does this verse mean? It simply means that if you read this with a surge of confidence, it says here, if God is for us, who can be against us? First, let's look at the word if. The word if here is not uncertainty. But rather, it is an implied fact. It is a presupposition. So if God is for you, who can be against you? You know what? The easiest way to do this is this way. Remove us there and replace it with me. Think about this for a while. If God is for me, who can be against me? In essence, that's what it simply means. If God is for Tom, who can be against Tom? 
If God is for Ronel, who can be against Ronel? If God is for me, who can be against me? It's what we have here. It does not mean confidence because we have no adversaries. It doesn't mean if God is for me, then no one can come against me. That's basically not what it means. It's not like when you were in high school, if you're connected with the biggest guy in the class that no one will bully you because you're associated with this person, then therefore no one can bully you in the classroom. That is basically not what it means. Why do we say that? If it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't mean that we will not have any adversary in this lifetime. You know why? Why do we say that? Because in verse 35, if you move further down, you come to understand that there are a lot of adversaries for the Christian man. We have a lot of adversaries. It says here, shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword. Will this thing separate us from the love of Christ? So meaning to say, we have adversaries. We will encounter suffering. We will have distress in this lifetime. We will go through anxiety. So what it simply means is, it means that we have confidence, not because we don't have adversaries, but we have confidence that in the midst of facing these adversaries, we know that God is with us. That God is with you at this very moment. In the midst of this crisis, God is with us. It says here, if God is for us. Have you ever thought about that? That the chief support who will sustain us is not our connections, but God himself. Our chief support that will sustain us in any kinds of trouble. In a season where there's a lot of joblessness, there's a lot of famine that's happening right now. Our chief support who will sustain us is God himself. If you are a Christian, I'd like for you to understand this. God is on your side. So when Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It simply means that no adversary is of account because God is with us. It simply means that ultimately, evil will not prevail against the child of God. That's why it says in verse 28, and I have to remind you with this. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Ultimately, evil will not prevail against the child of God. What's interesting here is, if you look at verse 31, you can take that as a promise, something that you get to apply in your life. I'd like for you to know that the promise, which is in verse 31, is stemming forth from a premise found in verse 32. Verse 32 here makes this argument airtight. That if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32 airtights it. It seals it. For the child of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 is the most conclusive proof of God's grace in our life. And here's what it says. In verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Interesting. This is an argument of greater to less. Paul was like, God gave his son, 
delivered him up for every single one of us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? In order for us to embrace the substance of this verse, let's focus on two portions of this clause. Let's look at the words, did not spare and gave him up. So again, like what I'm saying, this is the premise at which the promise in verse 31 stands for you and for me. And I hope and pray, I'm really prayerful that this will really minister to your soul. Let's look at the first one. Did not spare. It says here, God who did not spare his own son. The word spare here in its original Greek is the word fidumai, which means abstain or treat leniently. When a judge won't sentence a criminal with a punishment consummate to his crime, then he spared the criminal from that kind of punishment. And remember, when I was in elementary, together with my friends, we did something crazy and I shouldn't have graduated because of that. But our class moderator treated us leniently and that's why we were spared from expulsion. That is what spared means. So it says here, God did not spare. It's the negative aspect. And look at this one. It says here, gave him up. So in contrast, the father did not spare his son. He did not withhold or lighten the full extent of judgment upon his son. In short, verse 32 teaches every single one of us that Calvary witnessed a heaven-sanctioned crucifixion. A popular pandemic word that's being tossed around right now is the word amelioration. Think about it this way. There was no amelioration of the condemnation that was given to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no alleviation of the stroke of death. Judgment was dispensed upon the sun in its unrelieved intensity. The son was not spared. The interesting thing that I'd like for us to understand here is that the subject of this is the son. And when I say the subject of this is the son, I'm talking about his begotten son, not his adopted son, which is you and me. The subject of this non-sparing is his begotten son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The recipient of this is who? The recipient of this is for us all, us all, every single one of us. As here, it's not everyone in the, in the world, but everyone who are the redeemed elect of God. Like what I said, the us here are the true believers. We are the recipients of this. Did that spare and he was delivered. Judgment, friends, was not suspended, but judgment was diverted to the Son. It was released upon him. So we ask this question, who delivered the Son to crucifixion? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, according to Octavius Winslow, not the Jews for hate, but the Father for love. Christ was given to us to be given up for us. We're talking about the gospel here. That's why verse 31 will only make sense if you understand the gospel. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us, will only make sense. Can only be understood on the premise of verse 32. 
In verse 32, it says here, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You know, some 16th century Christians would practice something that's called pleading the promise. They would plead the promise in their desire to have an assurance of their salvation. The reason for that is the fact that many people are unsure about their salvation because there are a lot of what we call troublers of assurance. That's why in verse 33, Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In the heavenly courts, who shall bring a charge against the adopted sons and daughters of God? And he says, it is God who justifies. The devil in the world will always bring a charge against you. The devil in this world will always tell you about the things that you did the past months, the past weeks. What are the charges against us? What are the charges against you? Hypocrisy? Duplicity? Inconsistency? These are the charges that are being brought in our minds by the devil himself or sometimes by other people. When people tell you, Christian Tapanaman, is there a constant parade of your deepest miseries and failures as a true believer? If that is the case, then these words ring in our ears. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Do you folks realize that when everything is said and done, we will not come before the presence of God and God will tell us, it's a prank. Everything that you believe in your lifetime, Archie, was a prank. It's not going to happen. We are assured that we have been predestined for glory. But not just that, that God is also the one who's preserving us for glory. The perseverance of the saints doesn't really talk about our perseverance, but it talks about God's perseverance in order for us to persevere. To bring us to a place wherein we will persevere. One of the troublers of assurance of salvation for me personally was when I was a student. Because I was a biology major, I needed to go through a semester of reading a book called The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. And it was a troubler of assurance for me. But eventually, if you understand God's word, if you understand what Christ has done in your life, you know for a fact that you are a recipient of salvation, a recipient of God's grace and mercy. This question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, will only make sense if we look at the words God's elect. Would you say that with me for a while? God's elect. I am God's elect. Say that with confidence. You have to say that. You have to confess that, that you are God's elect. I mean, this question will make sense if you understand the words God's elect. I want us to understand this. We are the elect of God who have been elected by God. From the foundations of the world, God has chosen you. Has predestined you. Justified you. 
and will glorify you. We are the elect of God who have been elected by God. Where do we find that proposition? Again, back in verse 29 to verse 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Then those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Then it says here, it is God who justifies. The second clause of the 33rd verse is taken together with the first clause of verse 34. And verse 34, it says here, who is to condemn? Because it is God who justifies. Who can condemn you if you were a child of God? In the courtroom of heaven, no charge will be laid against you. Because every single ounce of condemnation, every single ounce of wrath brought by the condemnation of sin, was slain upon Christ himself. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 17 will make sense for every single one of us. And I'll read the latter portion first. And look at this. It says here, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is our heritage. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. That's the heritage of the servants of the Lord. We go to verse 34. It says here, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us all. So the question is asked, who is to condemn? Who is to tell that you are not saved? There are four guarantees in this verse that I'd like first to look into. Four guarantees that assures us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. First, it says here, Christ Jesus is the one who died. What does it mean? Christ has already died for every single one of us. Christ has died for our sins. He has died for our sins, past, present, and future. And the second part, it says here, more than that, He was also raised. He didn't remain as a dead person. We understand that He resurrected. Do you realize that that is a very important fact? You know why? Because it gives us a picture that Christ's love is not a memory. It is a moment-by-moment -moment experience. You know why? Because Christ is living. He lives to this age. It says here, who is at the right hand of God? He is in a position of authority. Everything is subject under Him. It says here, he's at the right hand of God, who what? Who indeed is what? Interceding for us. He intercedes for us to make sure that our journey home to heaven is secured. That your life, your salvation is preserved. In verse 35, it says here, who shall then separate us from the love of Christ? 
I want us to take note, this is not talking about our love for Christ, but Christ's love for us. Because our love for Him is fecal. Our love for Him is conditional. But Christ's love for us, come on. Christ's love for us is unconditional. God's love for us is unconditional. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This does not mean that we are cautioned from the bruisings of life. No, that's not what it means. When the Bible tells you that God loves you, it doesn't mean that you will be cautioned from the bruisings of life. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we will not suffer. No, in fact, if you look at verse 36, it even talks about martyrdom of Christians. In verse 36, it says here, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Look at this one. There's an account of a Roman historian called Tacticus. He lived in from AD 55 and died in AD 117. Here's what he says about the persecution of Christians under Nero. He says, Authorities arrested those who confessed to be Christians. Then, on information obtained from them, the court convicted hundreds more. Mercury was heaped on them on the in their deaths. They were covered in skins of wild beasts, torn by dogs, crucified, or set ablaze, so that when nighttime fell, they lit up everything like torches. When we ask the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It doesn't mean that our life will be for the Hallmark Channel. It doesn't mean that life is all snow and donuts and great music, full of vacations, full of everything that we dream of in this lifetime. Because it even talks about martyrdom. It even talks about death. It simply means that in the moment of life or death, Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or troubles in this lifetime, lack of money, lack of provision, physical persecution for some Christians, or it says here, or distress, anxiety, deep in the soul, deep in the mind, depression in our generation right now. We're struggling with mental health, persecution, famine, we're getting hungry, we're losing our jobs because of this pandemic. Nakedness, we cannot buy or afford things that we used to afford. Or danger, or even sword, or death. Paul is saying, will these things nullify the love of Christ for you? The answer is an absolute no. Beloved, I'd like for you to understand that you may experience these things in this lifetime, but always speak in your mind, you are not of this world. We are but pilgrims of this world. Heaven is waiting for us. In fact, when you talk about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, when we do one-to-one, -one, we can actually talk to someone about this. That when we preach the gospel to someone, we don't tell them, if you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, everything will fall right in place for you. And that's not what we say. 
In fact, we can get Romans chapter 8, verse 35. You know what? For some Christians, this is what happens to them. We will experience tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or even sword. Would you want to be a Christian? Would you still be Christian? Would you still consider Christianity if it talks about you perhaps not having your Montero sport down the road? Your dream home? That everything's well curated? Well, I'm not saying that these things are things that God can give. God can give these things to us. But when we sign up and surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand that these things are not the basis of His love for us. The basis of His love for us is found in verse 32, that He has died for you and you are heaven-bound. Nothing can take you of this journey as a pilgrim heaven for the presence of God. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, you know, these things are new normal for those who come to Christ. But I'd like for you to understand this. The more heightened the adversary is, the greater the assurance of your salvation. None of these things can unscrew the latch of Christ's love for you. Our assurance, therefore, and confidence lies in the character and the constancy of Christ's love for us. Let's look at the last few verses. It says here in verse 37, In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. Your understanding of God's love changes your perspective. It makes you understand that you are more than a conqueror. In verse 38 and verse 39, it says here, Great ending to this chapter. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He enumerated everything. Paul says, for I am sure it is a declaration of confidence. He was so sure. He says that neither death nor life. So whether you live in this lifetime or you die because of your faith. It says, nor angels, nor rulers. He talks about our life now. He even talks about spiritual beings. Nor things that's happening today or the future. Nor powers, nor height, nor death. He talks about their belief during that time. And he summarizes it, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The key words that we find here are this, the love of God in Christ. The love of God in Christ simply means that the love of God is exclusive, existent, and expressed only in Christ. In short, the love of God cannot be sought out of Christ. 
I want to conclude this by reading a poem from John Stott when he says, Let no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with all thy mighty grasp of me. Nothing can separate you from the grasp of the love of Christ. Always have that in your mind. If you're here and you are not a Christian, here's what I can tell you. The love of God cannot be sought out of Christ. The love of God is exclusively expressed and exclusively operational in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you've been called to persevere. That despite the trials that we may face in this lifetime, I'd like for you to understand it does not mean that God has canceled you. It does not mean that God has abandoned you. In fact, for some of us, the good that is being brought to you here is sometimes is not a breakthrough from our prayer, but a breakthrough in our character. That God is doing something in us. For some of you who's living a life of hypocrisy and apostasy, Today, my beloved friends, is the time to go back to Christ. The best day to do that is today, not tomorrow. You're listening to a message from Victory Dumaguete.